This is Josie Brown with Author Provocateur. In Gated Prey, prolific thriller writer and television producer Lee Goldberg's third novel in the Eve Ronan crime fiction novel series, her supposedly simple 24-7 sting operation takes a violent and unexpected turn, leaving three intruders dead and a body count that nearly includes Los Angeles Sheriff Detective Eve and her soon-to-be-retired partner, Duncan. Eve's bosses are eager to declare the case closed, but there are too many unanswered questions for her to let go. Was the trap actually for Eve as bloody payback for her very public takedown of a clique of corrupt deputies? Or is there an even deadlier secret lurking behind these opulent gates? Eve's refusal to back down and her relentless quest for truth makes her both the hunter and the prey. Lee and I discuss his research for the book, the toll of Eve's physical and emotional grief on her psyche and her strength, and why it's easy to make Duncan so lovable. And listen up, Lee and I discuss some very important projects he has on the horizon. So how you doing? I'm doing just great. I'm sorry I look so bad. I was up very late last night working. You don't look bad. You I do. I got bad. big dark circles under my eyes. I look like... Uh, uh, that that guy Davidson on on Saturday Night Live. Anyway. <laughs> oh oh man, no you don't. <laughs> I just don't have the tattoos. That's all. <laughs> Thank God for that. But you're you're you know you're like Chad, you know the pool guy, right? Oh you know? great, great. Yeah, that's a much better. That's much better. <laughs> By the way, I have uh, black under my eyes too because I was up till like I always write till like two or three a.m. That's in the what morning. I do. Typically, oh my God. <laughs> I, I work till two or three in the morning and get up at uh, 10 or 11. And um, last night I worked past three and got up at, uh, at 830 this morning. So I'm, I'm off. I'm off uh, balance. I know. I, I kind of did the same thing. I've been getting less than like seven hours of sleep at night, which is not good because I know that that, you know, I keep thinking of the movie A Beautiful Mind, <laughs> where uh -huh. your mind goes because you're not sleeping, you know. So sleep is important. I know that. And you know that. So... You know, we got to do our thing. And, you know, I use concealer. Just a little tip. Yeah, I probably should. You know, I, I'm in a house full of women. I, there's plenty of concealer here. Even the dog uses concealer. Female dog, I hope. No, no, just a very vain male dog. Well, I have to tell you, love this one. Oh, thank you. I thought, what a great opening scene. You know, you've got your protagonist, Los Angeles County Sheriff's Detective E. Ronan, and her soon-to-be-retired partner, Duncan Pavone, undercover in a posh, gated L.A. community while posing as decoys for a gang of thieves who seem to get in and out of these gated communities as if vanishing in thin air. But even in the first chapter, everything that can go wrong kind of did go wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, you can't prosecute a bunch of dead bodies. Sorry, I, that's that's a spoiler, but it's how you oh, kill great. them now off. Nobody's going to buy the book. You're just doomed by family to being destitute. We're going to lose the house by American will pay tuition. Thank you so much. I, I knew I should have done this interview. <laughs> oh, Lee, never say that. Never say that. Uh, but so, okay. What the heck were you thinking with that? that opening scene i mean for that alone well, people should buy the book things. one that opening scene is essentially set in my house I, I live in a gated community in calabasas i've been on the homeowner association board for decades 
And uh, we had a string of home invasion robberies and stuff in the past. But I also wanted to flip the script, so to speak. There's so many of these kinds of books, including my own, end with a big action sequence. And I wanted to open hot for a change, but not have it go perfectly uh, the way it does in so many of these books and TV shows. To have the unpredictable happen and, and to have things not go the way my hero and heroine would have liked it to. And I thought that was a good way into the story. And like you said, at the, at the end of that action sequence, they, they aren't left with a lot to go on. It seems like it's over. And I thought that having a case be over was actually a good way to start a case. And again, an effort to flip the script. I, I read so many police procedurals. I read so many mysteries. I watch so many of them. And my instinct is to approach the cliche or the trope and then go in a different direction. I think that's what makes the Eve Ronan novels interesting for readers and interesting for me, that they aren't quite following the narrative line that every police procedural going back to the 87th precinct, which I love, uh, do. Well, you know, you've got the break-ins as a wonderful A story. Uh, but your B story goes in a different direction. It yeah, now don't give that one away. But I will say that the B story is based on a real case that I learned about at a homicide investigators training conference in Green Bay, Wisconsin. I've been fortunate that I've been invited every year, with the pandemic being the exception, to attend these conferences that are, are for professional homicide detectives and law enforcement and first responders only and not civilians. But I know the person who runs the uh, seminars and, and he's a fan of my books and he, he lets me come in. And, and I, I heard about this case, and I, I just could not get it out of my head. Wow. So I fictionalized it and, and changed some aspects of it, but I worked closely with the actual investigators involved in that case. And the actual surprising beats of that story are real wow. and tragic and, and shocking. But um, this particular crime that we're that I'm not talking about, neither are you, is not typical. And I think a lot of readers have not ever encountered this, this crime before. And I think that adds something fresh and different to a home invasion robbery storyline, which, while I, I hope is surprising, is not exactly new. There, there have been a lot of stories about home invasion robberies, but I thought I, I maybe I brought a fresh spin to it. But also, I like the, the, the notion that my heroine is not just working on one case that there are other cases that, that get in the way and, and not necessarily connected to the, to the main case. I agree. I agree. I, I, I love the way you're able to make your A story and your B story intertwine. It, it's sort of a beautiful mystery tapestry is how I see it. Um, that just kind of comes out. And, and the other part of that is, you know, you don't see it coming. It's, it's sort you, you know, the reader needs a Hubble telescope <laughs> to see What's, you know, that it's going to happen that way. So, you know, or that something's going to, that they're going to connect that way. So I thought that well, was really I'm a, brilliant. I'm a big believer in fair play. And that means that whether it's a, a book that I've written or a TV show that I've written or produced, that's a mystery. I want all the clues to be there. I don't want the reader to have a, need to have a forensic lab in their home to solve the crime. I believe that once someone has read Gated Prey, they can then go back and reread it and see all the clues they missed that were right there in front of their face. Right, right. They discover the clues at the same time Eve Ronan does. I don't know if you're a Nero Wolf, but I don't send 
um, Archie or Saul to Venezuela and come up with a clue that I hide from the reader and then spring on them. Or, or in a bad show on a commercial, our hero will, will discover a key piece of evidence or interview a key witness or whatever. I hate that. I believe in fair play and mysteries. I think that makes it richer for the audience. And if the reader or viewer solves the crime before the detective, they don't resent you for it. They feel smart and they like you. you know, so it, it's, a, it's a delicate balance. You don't want the clues to be so obvious that the readers or viewers will solve it immediately, but you do want them there. And really it becomes about distraction and where you point the point of view of the reader or viewer so they aren't staring right at the clue all the time. Exactly, exactly. Um, I also love how your L.A. Sheriff's Department is such a political hotbed. Um, it reminds me of Prime Suspect, but you have humor. <laughs> uh, um, what do your sources tell you about the shenanigans you've written into the, like the Eve Ronan series? Is this true to law enforcement's behind-the-scenes political jousting? Well, here in Los Angeles, it's not behind the scenes. The scandals <laughs> that have, have gone through the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department are on the front page of Los Angeles Times every single day. The, the secret gangs, tattooed gangs within the department, the, the beatings and scandals at the county jail, the cover-ups, it's just, it's just shocking what's happening. And, and here at the Lost Hills Precinct, there, there's been a ton of scandals. I don't know if you heard about the Matrice Richardson case or even you know Mel Gibson and the anti-Semitism. This this station has gone through. I'm I'm not accurate here, but something like four different captains in two years. The, the turnover has been huge. Um, there have been detectives who've been fired, captains who've been fired. Uh, it's just it's it's awful. But the vast majority of sheriff's deputies and detectives are terrific. They're doing a difficult job under horrible circumstances in a department with a big dark cloud hanging over it. And I have heard repeatedly from law enforcement that I'm getting it absolutely right. In fact, you can see it in some of the reviews on Amazon. Cops will leave reviews saying, I've been in law enforcement for 20 years and, and this book is absolutely on point. I talk to a lot of law enforcement people when I'm writing these books, and I credit many of them in the afterward or the acknowledgments. But there are many I don't credit because they don't want their names associated with, with the book. They're going to get in trouble. But they're not stupid. They, they know how their department is perceived and what's going on and what we don't know about that they do. And I think for the most part, I'm being fair. And then you mentioned something earlier that's very, very important to me, which is humor. I believe there is humor in even the worst situations, the most tragic situations. I find it unrealistic that there are so many humorless police procedurals. I just, I don't buy it. It, it does not feel real to me. There, I don't mean dark cop humor about murder and death. I'm talking about just interpersonal humor that comes out in everyday interactions. We all use humor in our everyday lives. And I, I think that should be true for fictional characters too. And, and for me, sometimes I have to go back and cut a lot of it out. I, I don't wanna be writing a sitcom, but I also don't wanna be writing people who are dour and serious um, and humorless all the time. I just feel that's unrelentingly dark for the, for the reader and morose for the reader and not entertaining. I agree totally. I mean people aren't that way in real life, why would you write them just, you know, that way? If they were dark all the time, nobody would want to work with them, quite frankly. <laughs> Bringing up humor, 
please, please, please do not retire Duncan too fast, okay? I mean, half my notes, Lee, are ha-ha cute. Wherever he trades repartee with Eve. I mean, we could have done this whole show just doing a reading between the two of them for for at least an hour long, and people would have loved it. Not that I would give your plot away with all the, you know, all your one-liners, you know. Um, I know you're going to keep him in play probably beyond his retirement date. But, you know, I also want Eve to survive between now and then. And I don't know if that can happen with all the adventures they should have before he retires. So you tell me how that's going to fit in. Well, I don't want to give you the way, but he has a ticking clock. We've been counting the days in each book. And the books are only separated by days or weeks. in fact, the the one I'm writing right now picks up only a few days after uh, Gated Prey. So you know, there's a ticking clock on on their partnership, or maybe there isn't. Uh, we'll see. But that is the note I get the most before the pandemic, when I was out in the world, was you can't let him retire. <laughs> He's wonderful. <laughs> Please don't let him retire. I think the reason readers respond to Duncan Pavone, her partner, is because in some ways he's the audience. He, he criticizes her. He points out her BS, the ridiculousness of some of the things that happened to her. And, and I think he says some of the things that the reader is thinking and wishes they could say to Eve. But also he goes against the cliches of the cop, uh, who, dark with a serial killer past and you know, no marriage. He's married. He's got kids. He's happy. He has a balanced life. He doesn't have addictions, well, except for junk food. But you know, other than that, he's an, essentially a decent guy. Uh, who's done a good job and has become a father figure to a woman who really doesn't have a father in her life. She has a father, but doesn't really want him around. I think that's important. And I think the juxtaposition, LA is a unique city. So many cop shows and police novels are set here that the real world of Los Angeles has become a fictional landscape. There isn't a street you can walk on that hasn't either been filmed or written about. So police officers here are always confronting the fiction of police officers, reader and viewer expectations based on TV shows and movies. So the fact that Eve is already a media hero and is now becoming a character essentially in a TV series, she's torn between her own expectations, the expectations of the media, and soon maybe fictional expectations. And I like being able to to play all those different versions of Eve against each other and have Duncan comment on it. And again, I think that's something that makes um, these books different and and frankly makes them entertaining for me to write. I I have to enjoy writing them and I wouldn't enjoy writing just a straightforward homicide detective solving crimes. It's just been done to death and bores the hell out of me. I hear you. I hear you. Speaking of that, you know, my one concern for Eve is that her whole life revolves around her job. And I know that most law enforcement professionals live under so much stress. So this is, you know, an accurate representation. But as someone who has grown to love this character, I'm always wondering, do you see any light at the end of her tunnel where she has more of a balanced life? Well, I think unlike other characters like Eve Ronan, she has a family. She has a mother. She has brothers and sisters. She has nephews and nieces. And I mean, and she interacts with her family. She, she may be a loner on the job, 
but she was the eldest of, of several kids in a broken home and she's become a parent to them even now that they're adults. So we see her interacting with her family and her family is a big part of her life. And I think in that way, she's very different from most detectives like this in police procedurals. But also in, in book number two, she had a, a, a love affair. I mean, she had somebody that, that she was with and I plan on bringing him back. Um, and, and, and giving her a personal life. But I mean, Eve's not a perfect character. And, and one of her faults is that she gets absolutely absorbed in her job to the detriment of her career and herself physically. She's not carrying a lot of psychological and emotional scars, but certainly physical ones. I mean, she's getting her ass kicked in every book. And that's the other thing. Unlike other police procedurals, when she gets injured, that injury lingers. It doesn't disappear in the next book. She still suffers from it in some way. I mean, it's like, you know, how many times was, was Mannix shot and knocked unconscious during the run of that detective show? You know, how many times has Harry Bosch you know, had assassins come to his house and shoot the place up? It's, I think today it's necessary to confront those realities. That I think if you look at James Bond now, he gets in a fight and he has those bruises the rest of the of the movie. That's a big change from the old James Bond. And I think that's because audiences have gotten tired of the invincible hero. And yeah, I agree. I think that uh, you know the reality and in, in the reality of our world with all that we know now about terrorism and about you know gun violence. I think that seeing it as real kind of brings it home. And I have to say, I do appreciate the fact that you've. You've let her get hurt. You've let her, you know, feel her pain, her wounds, and they don't go away. They don't disappear. And I'm talking about the physical ones as well as the emotional ones. I mean, her wounds are there. I was, I was like, oh God, this poor girl. <laughs> you know, somebody needs to give her a great spa day. <laughs> yeah, I mean, coming into this book, is she's still you know, healing from her real broken sternum yeah. and everything else. It's just, it's not like she's back to normal and. Um, you know, even the, even the second book, she she had a broken wrist and she's in physical therapy. I don't I don't let the wounds just magically disappear and they right. become part of who she is and part of her her story and part of the reason people are concerned about her. Um, she's she's taken a beating. But she's also just 26 years old. She, she's a very young woman, hopefully with a bright and long career in front of her, but maybe not if she keeps treating herself this way. And that's one thing. Duncan keeps telling her, you cannot go on like this. You can't burn this hot and take this kind of beating and hope to survive. Um, and, you know, she's going to evolve. I mean, I, I hope that this series runs a long time because someday she will be John Rebus or Harry Bosch, someone who is totally confident, makes the right decisions, knows their right, uh, understands their skills and how to marshal them. She's not there yet. She has talent, but doesn't know how to how to use it yet. And she's making tons of mistakes, big mistakes that endanger cases and endanger herself. And I like that about her. I like that she could be stupid, <laughs> stupid and wrong and selfish and arrogant and blind to her own ego. I mean, she likes to pretend like she doesn't like publicity and that she isn't political, but clearly she's a media junkie and very political. And I like that contradiction, the lies we tell ourselves. You know, um, I had heard a rumor, and you can confirm it, 
that there will be a fourth Eve Ronin book. It's not a rumor. It's official. There will be a fourth Eve Ronin book. It'll be out in the summer, spring or summer of 2022. It's untitled at the moment. And I am, as I said earlier, I was up late, late last night um, writing it. And uh, it picks up very shortly after the events of Gated Prey. And it also ties up some of the things that have been left purposely untied from the very first book in the series. There are some reviews on Amazon saying, it's not a complete book. He didn't tie up everything because life doesn't get tied up right away. I'm aware of what I haven't tied up and it's on purpose. <laughs> it's, it's, not, it's not laziness. It's like, there are some things that don't get solved right away that, that linger and you know that will come into play later on. And I think that, that gives a longer narrative arc to the books. Yes, each book stands alone. You don't have to read them in order, but there are some strings that run throughout the books. And hopefully if the series goes on beyond the fourth book to more, it'll continue to be that way because that's the way life is. Not everything gets wrapped up. People from your past come back. Right. Yeah, I hear you. I, I had one thread going in my book from the first to the eighth. And, um, you know, people love the, love the first book. Love it. But I don't like the fact that she didn't wrap this up. And I'm like, Hey, like you, that's life. And guess what? That's called an, you know, overreaching arc. You know, I mean, you've got to, you've got, sometimes books have that. That's the thread in a series, in a TV series, that would be the same thing. I mean, we did, when I say we, I I wrote five books with my old friend, Janet Ivanovich, and we decided in one of the books to end it on a cliffhanger, a pretty big cliffhanger. We resolved the main story, but then we had a surprise at the end and a big cliffhanger that wouldn't be resolved until the next book. And I would say half the readers loved it. Half the readers wanted to burn our homes down. They were (laughs) furious. How could we do that? It was so wrong. And and we resolved the cliffhanger early in the next book, but they just thought it was cheap excuse to get people to buy the next book. And it was wrong. And we just, it amused Janet and I. It wasn't a marketing thing. It was just, instead of the happy, you know, epilogue, what if we just, out of nowhere, pow, you know, you know, gave it to our readers and left them hanging, you know, wanting more because we knew there would be another book. It's not like with the Eve Ronins where I'm not sure there'll be another book. You know, it really depends on the sales of the prior book or the pre-sales for the, the one coming up to determine whether there'll be another one. So, you know, the, any Eve Ronan book I write could be the last and there could be some things that, that don't get resolved, but I'm hoping Eve will have a nice long, long run. Um, well, speaking of that, it would help if there were a TV show tied to it. And I'm hoping that you have some news about that, or maybe there's some inkling of things happening behind I the scenes. I have to take the fifth on that question. But I can say that um, when I was writing Gated Prey, I thought it would be ironic if a TV series were to happen at the same time I was writing this book. But there, there has been significant um, Hollywood interest in Lost Hills. In fact, unfortunately, I am contractually prohibited from revealing any details. I, I've been very fortunate. I straddle two worlds. Uh, I'm, I have a very lengthy career in television, ongoing career in television, and I'm also in books. And um, most of my books are in some level of development with it, as movies or, or TV shows, some with my active involvement. And frankly, some I have absolutely nothing to do with. Uh, and I'll be as surprised as everybody else to see what's done with them. But I, I think it's, I think the reason my books are 
so quickly optioned for film or television is because I write them using a lot of the things I've learned from my decades in, as a writer, producer, and TV. I make sure that they are driven by character and dialogue and action, that every scene reveals character or furthers the plot. There's no dead space. They're paced like a television show. They're written in the same four-act structure as a television so show. So instinctively, <laughs> they're appealing. And particularly in the Eve Ronan novels, I kind of write them like scripts in that I want the the prose to be invisible. I don't want you to be aware that you're reading a book. I want you to get lost in the plot. I don't want the writing to call attention to itself. And that's actually harder than it sounds because the natural instinct of a writer is to make the writing very present, to have clever metaphors and descriptions. So people go, that's a clever line. Well, if I have a clever line, I put it in a character's mouth and not in the, in the prose. And that's the departure for me with the Eve Ronin novels. Well, if that's a departure, then I should be reading everything you write, and I should be <laughs> watching every show made from it, especially if I'm, if I'm studying the craft. I, I think you're an excellent uh, craftsman. Well, thank you. I've been fortunate in that you know, I've worked in television for many years, and books never came close financially to what I was earning you know, doing Diagnosis Murder and Monk and The Glades and Sequest and all those shows. But there was a point where that shifted. And I found I was making as much from books as I was from TV. And I made the conscious decision, I'm going to write books instead. Because I don't need to deal with all the politics. I can be at home. I, my hours are better. And so I shifted my career to books rather than television. But I've kept my hand in. I mean, I have a TV series on Hallmark, uh, Mystery 101, that I co-created. They just The seventh movie is airing on August 1st. So it's not like I'm not still involved in TV, but I don't have to go in the office every day. I'm not in the editing room. I'm not in prep. I'm not in a writer's room. I miss a lot of that. But I also love the fact that I can, if I wanted to, if there was no pandemic, I'd get on a plane and go visit my wife's relatives in France or we go to Hawaii. Nobody cares where I am or what I'm doing as long as my book comes in on time. I've been fortunate. I've been a successful author and a successful television producer, and I was able to make the choice to be one or the other, and, and that's nice. Well, we all live vicariously through you, and we all aspire to be you, so I hope you keep oh, living your- Oh, that's so nice. It's, it's not true, <laughs> but so nice. <laughs> Lee Goldberg's Gated Prey is in bookstores now. This is Josie Brown with Author Provocateur.